0: Welcome to Dedication Point, a speaker series and podcast produced by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. I'm Matt Podolsky. We're following current issues relevant to the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area in this season of the show with a central focus on climate change's impact on this landscape. In our past few episodes we've had wide-ranging discussions about the impacts of wildfire, the potential for carbon sequestration, shifting approaches to land management, what climate models can tell us about the future, and more. This episode features a discussion that Birds of Prey NCA partnership president Steve Alsup and I had with Danielle Murray and Andres Esparza from the Conservation Lands Foundation. The Conservation Lands Foundation represents a national movement of grassroots activists working to protect restore and expand the National Conservation Lands System, which includes the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey NCA. The organization has played a key role in the establishment of the Birds of Prey NCA partnership and continues to be one of the most important supporters of the work that we do. Just a few months ago, the Conservation Lands Foundation launched the Climate Atlas an online public lands mapping tool that allows users to visualize climate resiliency, biodiversity, stored carbon, and many other landscape features that are important to conservation efforts. We'll be exploring this fascinating new tool along with many other aspects of the Conservation Lands Foundation's work in this episode of the podcast. Tell us your name, your role at the uh, Conservation Lands Foundation, and a, a little bit about what that role entails.
1: Well, thank you, Matthew, and thanks for having us today. My name is Danielle Murray. I'm the Senior Legal and Policy Director here at the Conservation Lands Foundation based in Durango, Colorado, which is our headquarters in the West. I do a lot of policy work, work on resource management plans and working to change the conservation dynamics of the Bureau of Land Management and some of our key landscapes, which are national monuments and national conservation areas. I also work to help protect places that aren't protected now through conservation and policy.
2: Awesome, and my name is Andres Esparza. I am the Grassroots Engagement Director here at the Conservation Lands Foundation, and I uh, I also get to work in our Durango headquarters, a lovely place to be. Um, About half of our staff are here, the other half are spread out across the West. Uh, My job with uh, CLF here is working as a bit of an ambassador liaison to our Friends Grassroots Network, which we're gonna talk about in a bit, Um, basically a collection of nonprofits across the West that uh, do this important work. And working with this network, I run our capacity building program, Called the grassroots advancement program. Um, and our belief through that program is that um, it is important and vital to serve the foundation needs of supplying money to groups on the ground to do powerful work. But parallel to that, um, capacity building resources, training, and networking is what allows these nonprofits on the ground to be the most successful change agents in the West. So a combination of foundation money, policy, and training creates a network of high-powered ultimately successful conservation nonprofits.
3: Awesome, well, for people that might be unfamiliar with the National Conservation Lands, um, tell us a little bit about that in general, and then tell us a little bit about how the Conservation Lands Foundation kind of supports that system.
2: The way I like to talk about our conservation lands, our National Conservation Lands, is the crown jewels of the BLM landscape. The BLM being the federal agency that manages the most land in the United States Uh, But also um, is per acre and agency wide is uh, understaffed and under resourced in a lot of ways. Um, So you have this issue of areas that are prime jewels like Grand Staircase Escalante, Bears Ears, um, the California Coastal Monuments, areas that should be protected for all the reasons we would protect land. But we um, believe, and through the Conservation Lands Foundation, we wanna support the agency and the nonprofits on the ground, help make sure that those areas are protected and resourced when available so that they can continue to be protected for future generations. Um, But I'd love to hand it off to Danielle for a little bit more context, maybe on the CLF side of our genesis.
1: Yeah, Andres, you did a great job. I was gonna start with the BLM being the largest land manager. So I'll just add to that. The Bureau of Land Management and those lands are why the West looks like it does. All these open spaces, all of, these places where the West recreates, right? A lot of us don't go to national parks. We go to these places where we can do dispersed camping and we can hunt and we can recreate. And that's really why the Conservation Lands Foundation exists. The history of the Bureau of Land Management is very much an extractive one. And if we want to change that model, we need to start prioritizing conservation as a value for the Largest land managing agency in the nation to make sure the West looks like it does now in 50 years, and so the conservation lands foundation was started to really support a grassroots movement local groups and communities that love these places in their backyard these public lands to protect them to protect them for for people, for wildlife, and for longevity. So different from the national parks, a lot of these places don't have a lot of infrastructure, you won't see hotels in them, they really are managed in their natural state. And and this is this is on purpose to allow kind of Westerners to get out there and experience the landscape on their own. So Conservation Lands Foundation is both a foundation, we give grants to smaller local friends groups to be kind of the ground game for conservation. And we also network those groups together for larger policy changes in DC.
0: I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about like the the specific needs that the Conservation Lands Foundation is trying to address and like how the organization is structured to like meet some of these specific challenges faced by these protected landscapes within this system.
2: The challenges are varied and um, span the full spectrum from full on extractive industry that is, uh, you know, clear cutter mountaintop removal to Uh, more smaller but we call it diff by a thousand cut type stuff like improper travel management plans that result in new trails and um, riparian degradation over time and so our goal is to be looking at this um, holistically not just from a keep the oil in the ground perspective but realizing that these lands in the west um, have a variety of uses but it's our hope and goal that the bend will go more towards conservation of these places thinking about the existential threats that we face in the future due to climate change, we have to begin shifting this model away from any and all multiple uses to a bend towards conservation. And alongside that, um, you know, I think we're, we're talking about it more, which is really good that these lands aren't just ours because our government manages them to do whatever we want on them. But as we think about the, all the ways and reasons we need to protect these lands, we overlay not just the ecological benefits of these lands or the vistas or the other landscape features, but the fact that these are cultural and indigenous lands first and foremost. And when we layer that on top of it, we really start to get to this idea that even if a place isn't currently faced with a, um, a mining threat at the moment, if you layer on the fact that it is indigenous land and there are cultural, culturally significant sites in that landscape, um, that's reason enough to begin thinking about how do we protect this place so that the history that is embedded in these landscapes continues to exist, honoring the people who have been there um, before we called them BLM landscapes. So it's uh, there are a lot of threats, but there are also a lot of reasons why we should be protecting these places. Um, and I think as we dive into specific landscapes, it varies place to place. Um, but there's always a reason to look at a landscape and think what would be the conservation benefit and whose history or who in the future would benefit from that conservation goal.
1: You know, I'll just add to that, that change is hard, but it is a constant. And so we are really looking to change kind of how public lands are managed in the West and we're set up in a way that allows us to both work with the agency to support the agency to help the agency to make them you know, look good by, you know, using comms and using different tools to help talk about the importance of the BLM, while at the same time trying to move a conservation agenda forward. And, you know, sometimes there is a little push and pull there, but I think you know, we are ultimately trying to be allies to the agency as we are effective conservation advocates. And I think that is, you know, a structure that at some times, you know, you do have a a little bit of speed bumps, but in the end, I think is the only way to make really productive changes to do that with the agency and support of the agency.
3: Awesome. And Danielle, that's the sort of a Good lead into, um, we're curious a little bit more about your specific role at CLF as the senior policy and legal director.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I started about 12 years ago, right uh, after our organization was actually founded when there were three staff and now we're up to 20. So we've grown as an organization and my role at the organization has changed over time. Some of the more interesting things, especially as it relates to working with the agency, is that during the Trump administration, we did get involved in some litigation. It was the first time that we did as an organization uh, make that decision and our board made that decision. Uh, and so, yes, my role is to manage really high profile threats to BLM, to the conservation mandate of the agency, but also to think of creative ways that we can better manage the national conservation lands as a whole and be consistent in that management so it means something to be in the system.
0: Andres, uh, you mentioned the Friends Grassroots Network earlier. I I wonder if you can um, tell us a little bit more about uh, I mean, what this network is and also, you know, how the, the model behind this network helps advance the work of CLF and also all of these friends groups that, that, um, we've been talking about that are associated with different protected areas within the, within this system.
2: Yeah, Matthew. Uh, so our, our belief in the friends grassroots network is uh, rooted in the idea that, you know, Danielle and I for, um, for as knowledgeable as I may think we are or our general staff is, uh, we're in Durango and we have a particular set of resources and connections that we can uh, put to use, but um, we don't live in Boise. We don't live in Ontario, Oregon. Uh, we don't live in Mesquite, Nevada or all the rural West places where the most important work is happening on the ground. Um, Steve lives and works and plays it right at Birds of Prey NCA. Um, Tim Davis lives and works in the Oahis in Oregon. I could go on and on with the people who live in these places. So they're born there, live there, go to the same small town grocery store that everybody else does. Um, so if anybody is going to be successful in advocating for and protecting these places, it's um, it's not necessarily a group with money that is far removed. They have huge impacts in the vital work, but the groups that are on the ground that live there are the ones who not only have the best idea of how conservation can be best achieved, but they have the community connections and ultimately live with the decisions that are made and continue to support these landscapes. And so that's kind of my long-winded way of saying conservation is local grassroots based um, and it's how it's gonna be successful moving forward. And so our belief with our network is that it is our duty to support this network of 80 plus organizations across the West Similar in size and scope to Birds of Prey NCA partnership, some much bigger, some much smaller, um, all ensuring that local voices that are focused on conservation have a say in and lead on conservation efforts. You know, this is alongside local Indigenous communities, youth activists, and working with people who, you know, at first glance you may call the opposition, but in reality, it's all people who value the landscape where our goal is simply to make sure that that protection is always conservation focused. So our goal with CLF is to make sure that the advocates on the ground, the local nonprofits have all the support they need, which is why at CLF, you know, as Danielle said, we do really, we do three things. We, we are a foundation first and foremost. Um, we engage in policy comms and litigation support as needed. And we provide capacity building resources so that the folks on the ground who are going to be there long after the fight leaves the national headlines are still well-equipped, both in knowledge and money and confidence to to lead into the future so that these landscapes retain their protections.
0: You know, you mentioned there's 80 plus of these sort of friends groups, um, and obviously our sort of friends group, which is called the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, is a friends group for the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. Is part of what the Conservation Lands Foundation doing with this Friends grassroots Network, is the idea that you're bringing together existing groups that were sort of launched organically to provide support to these local areas? Or are you like actively trying to initiate the creation of groups to sort of serve as that grassroots on the ground, like local connection with landscapes or is it a little bit of both?
2: If there is already a group of passionate individuals that are interested in protecting that landscape, our job is to help them get where they need to be so that they can do the work they believe in. Um, if there's already people doing the work, um, those are the people who have self-selected. We're always happy to help them with uh, hiring and skills to be everything they want to be. Um, if we enter into a landscape or a campaign that is in desperate need of a local group, um, you know, part of our job is to ask around and see who's, who has done this work in the past. Are, has there been groups that are now defunct that could be revived who have this mission already? As much as possible, we um, need and want it to be organic. We want it to have begun before we enter um, because those are the people who believe in those landscapes. And we want it to be seen as a true community effort, not somebody from Durango coming in and creating a group. Um, that's not to say that's bad in any way, uh, but we fully realize the politics of the rural West and often it's people who go to your church, who shop at your grocery store, who work on your car. Those are the people you're gonna trust um, and for good reason. And so we really do wanna make sure that the it's as organic as possible so that the relationships are, are true and real. But Steve, I know you entered the network uh, before my tenure here started. And I'd love to hear about maybe your, um, your introduction to our network.
3: Yeah, it, it's interesting. Our sort of genesis is sort of a hybrid of those two things we just talked about. So um, there, there was a friends group for the uh, NCA bef- before we existed, and, and that group um, disbanded and, and broke apart and sort of reached out to the local Audubon chapter to try to say, hey, here's the money that we have left over and we'd like another group to form. Um, And so uh, Andre's predecessor, Betsy Buffington, came to town and helped um, pull some people together to talk about who's interested, who's around, is there some support to to start a new organization um, and just sort of helped. um, I I know there was folks from all the agencies. So there's Fish and Wildlife Service and, and BLM and USGS. And then we've got a lot of local conservation nonprofits. So there was, um, a great basin conference that was in town. And so we sort of used that collective meeting to have a little sub meeting about, is there some support to start a friend's group? Um, and I was at that meeting and, um, I, it was the perfect timing for me. I had originally moved to Idaho like years and years ago to work in the NCA to do wildlife surveys. Um, and I, and I grew up in Louisiana, so this was my first trip to Idaho, my first trip being in Boise, and I was just floored by the canyon and the amount of birds of prey that were nesting there. Um, And so as an early, early like field tech, I was like, oh, this job's amazing. I'm gonna do this every year. Uh, And then the funding never came back for that project. So uh, I liked Boise enough to stick around, but I was at the point of really pushing for some research to get started back up in the NCA. I wasn't super happy with doing sort of environmental consulting work. And so when the opportunity to start a group that focused on the NCA that I wanted to work in and wanted to support came up, it was just easy to jump in. Um, so from that meeting, I think 10 or 12 people, you know, wrote their contact information down and said, hey, we're, we're interested. Um, so with Betsy's help, we sort of put the skeleton, the framework of the group together. About six of us stayed on board to be the original board members. And that was in 2015. We've been sort of up and running since then.
1: Yeah. And and if I could just add, Matthew, one one thing about our philosophy with the Friends Grassroots Network is we try to really meet people where they are. There's no box that a friends group has to fit into. Some of them are all volunteer and they do great work. Some of them have really robust staff, robust budgets. Some of them are focused on paleontology, some archaeology, really... you know, uh, recreation. We have Dolores River Boating Advocates. So we really try to meet people if they love a landscape for whatever reason, where they are, and and support them.
2: And I'll add it one more thing because you know our network is where our passion is. We're excited about this, and you know a lot of groups have traditionally and will continue to look like a uh, Birds of Prey NCA partnership, uh, a group dedicated to a place, the advocates of that place. But we're realizing more and more with our network model is that. Um, A lot of learning happens within the network, a lot of inspiration and leadership sharing happens within a network of powerful, passionate leaders. And we realize there's this opportunity to not just have place-based organizations, but organizations that offer something new to the conservation community. So we're bringing in new partners that have different skill sets and perspectives that will ultimately drive us forward. Um, One group that comes to mind that I think is really great is called the Trails Access Project. Um, they are you know, based in the Vegas area, but they're not tied to a particular landscape. Instead, their entire mission is focused around people with disabilities and making public lands accessible, ADA accessible. Even if it's just one or two trails, what does it look like to have at least one trail in every public land unit that is actually ADA compliant and upkept? That's a game changer because it means that all of the landscapes that Americans and anybody else chooses to visit are accessible regardless of, how you move around or what your accessibility needs are. So, in addition to landscape protection, there's this thought of how do we expand that to access and equity and justice? And I think our network model allows us to not have to be teaching or talking all the time, but instead hand it off to other leaders in our network to inspire each other.
0: Something that both of you have touched on is the relationship between the Conservation Lands Foundation and the Bureau of Land Management. It's obviously really important to collaborate, right? But there's a balancing act because there's also an advocacy role for organizations like CLF to play. And I mean, this is happening like both on a national scale and on a local scale, right? So, I mean, I'm curious to hear both about like what that looks like for... The Conservation Lands Foundation as a whole, but then also how this Friends grassroots network is able to assist some of the smaller Friends groups like the Birds of Prey NCA partnership in negotiating these sometimes really tricky relationships with like local BLM offices who are responsible for the on the ground management of these protected areas.
2: Yeah, I would uh, I would say, and Danielle, I would love to get your perspective on this as well. I would say that our Focus is um, to really ultimately support the agency, the BLM, in being the conservation agency that it could be. Um, It's not an adversarial relationship. It's not always, uh, you know, hunky dory, beautiful either. It's a real relationship, just like any relationship in real life. But our goal is to make sure that the agency can carry forth the conservation agenda and we're there to support when necessary um, through. Our Friends Grassroots Network, they're the advocates on the ground who um, show up to town halls when the BLM hosts public comment periods. They are the ones who comment and let the BLM know that there are local people here who who want these conservation measures and who are here to help steward alongside the agency that makes some of this happen. Um, so really it is the local advocates who... Uh, ultimately will be tasked to assist with stewardship projects with a uh, community engagement often and make sure that the agency has local support through their nonprofit partners on the ground.
1: So I can give an example of what happened in the previous administration and how the difference between kind of me sitting in Durango working on national policy and the friends groups. During the the Trump administration, uh, BLM officials were no longer allowed to come to events of ours, to speak. We really were cut off from, you know, working productively with leadership. And that happened throughout the administration um, the, the past four years. And it was really sad because we had a lot of great relationships. And I think there was just a hesitancy to work with conservation organizations at that higher level. However, the friends groups were able to keep those local relationships with BLM because they lived in the same communities, they continued to work together, and they didn't, it, it, all the kind of political drama, you know, they were still able to maintain those relationships, work together. Um, to protect a landscape. And so that's kind of the difference that you see. And yes, you know, I, I feel bad for our BLM friends sometimes because it seems like, you know, they, there's huge waves in administrations and we establish such great relationships and try to work together. We're working with BLM right now on an MOU that would focus on really highlighting public lands and how important they are. And we're going to support BLM in that, and we can help bring resources to the table. And so we're both winning. I mean, those type of things sometimes don't happen in various administrations. And so you kind of just have to take your cue from the agency. We didn't want to push anything, but that's just an example of how the friends groups are able to maintain those relationships. And those are the things that kind of get us through some, some tough anti-conservation administrations is that like solid relationships locally.
3: Yeah, really quick follow up. Uh, How in the last year or so, has there been a big shift like there was a in the previous administration, sort of a disconnect? Have you guys seen some reconnection, some some sort of rebuilding of those bridges that might have fallen away?
1: Yes. And it was almost immediate. We are now having regular check-ins with the National Conservation Lands lead and staff. Over Zoom, COVID has made it really hard to do anything in person, but just check-ins. What are we working on? Again, we're working on an MOU now with the comms staff at BLM and others to talk about the importance of public lands and have a kind of comms campaign. We're just seeing a lot more willingness Comfortability of working with us as allies uh, on certain projects. Again, the advocacy we have to check that at the door a lot of times with our BLM uh, conversations, but we can still work together on projects where we have kind of a joint vision and joint goals, and that has changed pretty much overnight.
2: Yeah, and I would just say that you know we we say the agency we say BLM all the time um, because it is a an institution, an agency, but it is made up of local passionate people as well who if, I mean, you go out and you chat with any of them or go have a drink with them after work, you realize they love the landscape. They want to be doing that job. I think very few people get stuck working at the BLM. You choose to work in the rural West because you love those landscapes and because of um, external political factors, sometimes what you're able to do in that role, it, it grows and shrinks depending on the politics at play. Um, But the reality is, it's an agency of wonderful, passionate people who want to do the best. Um, And that's something we always try to keep in mind the fact that it is not a person's fault. The person is not bad. Um, There is a larger structure at play. And sometimes you just have to sit and wait for a few years and know that the relationship will continue um, when the time is right.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really great point, right? And I mean, Steve and I can certainly speak to that type of experience in our. Relationship and the relationship with Birds of Prey NCA Partnership and the local BLM staff of this national conservation area. I think we're really lucky that we have really great relationships with all of the staff um, of the NCA, but that staff is tiny and that staff is being asked to do things that they just don't actually have the capacity to do. And it, it, it's it's very like frustrating I think for for us because like we feel like our hands are tied because it's like here we have these we've developed these really great relationships with BLM staff. They're coming to us with information about like you know some of the frustrations that that they have with like the higher up administration in BLM. we feel like our hands are tied from an advocacy perspective because we don't want to jeopardize the relationship with those staff members. You know what I mean? And I see you guys shaking your head, like it's, this surely is like a common problem amongst other friend groups. Like, I'm just curious, like what, what do you do? yeah, like what do we do? <laughs> what
1: do, you do? Well, I can give you one example and this doesn't solve anything, but it is an example of how we can support BLM is, I don't know if the Birds of Prey signed on to this letter, I'm sure you did, but we had a sign-on letter to increase appropriations for BLM, for the National Conservation Lands, to get more staffers, to get more monument, NCA staffers, scientists, technicians, and so we were able to do that, increase the budget for the, the BLM. And now we're you know waiting on a continuing resolution. But if that does pass, there will be significant more resources for the agency. And that's something that advocates can do to support the BLM. Yes, it takes a while for that to kind of kick in, but those are the type of advocacy campaigns where you can't directly fix the problem, but as an advocate, you can support them in a large scale.
2: And I would add on that as well, that it's really important to expand how we think about advocacy. Like Advocacy is signing on petitions, very important work. Advocacy is showing up to town hall, sometimes opposition of a bad decision. Advocacy as a lifelong environmental educator, advocacy is taking people to a landscape and inspiring them. Advocacy is connecting communities that haven't been connected to those communities previously. Reaching out to the local Latino community with a Spanish language interpreter and going on a hike. Um, connecting people to places is building power. And when it comes to advocacy and campaigns and grassroots organizing, power building is vital. And even if people aren't given a task of write your senator and you know, ask to reverse this decision, simply connecting people to places elevates their importance in the public eye. And that is a major component of advocacy that. Regardless of what administration we're in, um, it's always a winning tactic of we want to bring people to this place. Don't call it advocacy because it's really a variety of things at that time. But know that advocacy is so far reaching in how you can phrase it. Um, I like to think that just a person seeing a landscape and falling in love with it is the birth of an advocate. And sometimes that's the easiest thing we can do.
3: One of the things I was going to say is I, I think there's a lot of support like for our group at the NCA staff level, and then also probably at the national level, right? Because there's someone looking at national conservation lands. It's that space between, right? At the state level where the disconnect is, right? Our NCA staff is part of a field office and the field office is part of a district and the district is part of the state and the state you know, is within the national. So um, our staff loves what we do and they want to do more of it. And then when they pitch that up to the state, um, they're like, we're, we don't do research, right? That's for the USGS or for you know Idaho Fish and Game to do. So it's kind of interesting thing that, yeah, we've got support at the ground and support way at the top. And it's that space in the middle um, where our disconnect is.
1: Every year, the federal government should come up with a new budget for that year, for everything. But sometimes they can't come to agreement. So they just sign a continuing resolution, which means you have the same budget as last year. And then you kick the can down the road to the next year and then hopefully you can get agreement there. You come up with a new budget. Sometimes it kicks the can. So right now we're undering a continuing resolution, which means Congress is still trying to figure out whether they can agree on a budget. If they do, we have advocated to the point where the budget would be significantly more. So if they pass what's before them and don't do a continuing resolution, there will be significantly more resources for the national conservation lands. If not, We're going to be asking you guys to sign on to a letter next year to get that increase in the budget for next year. And hopefully they won't continue to sign it. We're going to get it one day.
3: I know. I I looked at the amount of increase that that might, you know, like it's a significant increase. Significant. I guess that's one question that our friends group has for the CLF. Like, how is there a mechanism to talk to someone at the national level to to push down toward the state for more resources, right? Like we push up, we talk to our staff and they say, we'll present this to the state and see what happens. Is there a way to approach from the top down?
1: Yes. I mean, one thing that we've done in the past that we are planning to do in mid-February is set up a meeting with a handful of friends groups from across the West and the BLM director and potentially, Tracy Stone Manning and um, Nada Culver and have a conversation about what the friends groups do, how they can support BLM, but also what they're seeing on the ground and what would be really helpful to managing the national conservation lands. And so that's something that we can also do, be that kind of joiner of friends groups and connect to the national level.
3: So our national conservation area is different and then it was set up to protect a certain group of species. And so when the state says, well, like, we don't do research, that's not what we do. It's like, but you have an NCA that's set up to, like it says, will protect, like, how can you follow the establishing legislation if you have zero input into what's happening in the canyon? So,
0: or you just don't know up until a couple of years ago before these Prairie Falcon surveys were restarted and they were restarted because of money from DOD, right? Not because of money from BLM. Before that happens, like I was trying to make the argument to anybody who would listen to me that this whole situation was like in violation of the establishing legislation for the NCA, because the establishing legislation says this area should be managed for the protection and enhancement of raptors in their habitat. And nobody had done any research. Nobody knew what the status of the raptor population was. So I'm like, you can't tell me that any single management decision is being done for the benefit of raptors because you're not even monitoring the raptors. You don't have access to the information that would allow you to even assess whether it's protecting and enhancing raptors. So you're in violation of the law.
1: And to take it one step further, you can throw this, you can get out FLIPMA, Federal Land Policy Management Act, which BLM always goes back and says like, FLIPMA, we're we're multiple use FLIPMA. The FLIPMA in says specifically manage this way unless there is another law that says you should manage it differently. So flitma is telling BLM, yes you man you maybe you say you don't do x y and z under flitma, but flitma even says once there's a new law, once congress says you do something, that's what you do. It takes it out of the realm of flitma. So do it.
0: But no, I do want to dive into the Climate Atlas tool. Um, yeah, I mean, Danielle, I wonder if you can just kind of give us an introduction. Like, where did the idea for this come from initially? And and you know, and obviously, like, just describe briefly what it is and like, where did the idea come from?
1: So about two years ago, uh, the previous administration. All of these reports started to come out. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change came out with a report that talked about the interconnection between land and climate. There was the Campaign for Nature was starting and the Global Deal from Nature, which is a scientific report that said to mitigate the impacts of climate change and biodiversity crisis, we need to protect our natural ecosystems, our lands in natural form. And so we kept seeing all these reports and realized that as a conservation agency working with the largest land manager in the nation, to really protect more ecosystems. This is our greatest opportunity, at least in the United States. And so this 30 by 30 concept of like, we need to get to 30% of protection by 2030 and 50% of protection by 2050 to help mitigate the climate crisis for sequestration, to help us adapt as humans and species. We really need to protect our natural ecosystems. So I started talking to our national partners. Hey, is there out there, do we have anything where we can show that interconnection between lands and climate and biodiversity? And I kept getting no. And so I worked with some high level partners, pulled together some funding, and was re- able to create a tool that looked at our available unprotected public lands, which is Bureau of Land Management and Forest Service, and the climate and biodiversity implications of protecting those lands. So with the Climate Atlas tool you can look at how much carbon is stored in the soil, in the grounds, so you're getting a sense of what sequestration is happening. Also if you develop in that area what carbon you're going to release. You can look at species, the range of species in an area, habitat, Uh, and habitat dispersal gene gene movement how species can move within an area also look at how natural is the area how intact is the area there's all these different layers there that you can play around with and see what the the benefits are of any given unprotected acre in the united states really focused on the west and alaska
0: it's An amazing tool and i was lucky enough to have the chance to sit in on the workshop danielle that you gave um for members of the friends grassroots network and just fascinating and the level of detail that you can get by zooming into different portions um, of the map and uh, it's just amazing and especially for us you know i mean we've been producing these episodes uh here on the dedication point podcast um, for a, a number of months, really focused in on these questions about climate change, how climate change like has affected and will continue to affect. Specifically, we're talking about protected landscapes, you know, uh, uh, where we are, like in sort of the Snake River Plain, Snake River Canyon area in uh, southwestern Idaho, and they're really difficult questions to to, to tease out. And this tool allows folks to, to visualize the impact of climate change in a way that is like very accessible to like a non-scientist. I, I just wanted to give both of you an opportunity to talk about how you envision this being used, you know, both by CLF as a whole, but also like by all of these local friends groups.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for recognizing that point. I am not a scientist. My background is in law and policy. And so I get frustrated sometimes. There's so much good science out there, but it's hard to use as an advocate. It's in paper form. It sits on your desk. It's hard to compute. What does it mean? The science is out there. This tool didn't create new science, it just took the best available and put it into a platform where you could use it as an advocate. So that was really, uh, you know, underlying the entire project. And then as far as user ability, there are so many campaigns out there, so many public lands campaigns, so many friends groups, so many advocates even outside the network that care about public lands, they don't have the resources or the time or the capacity to create a tool like this. So by creating this, we're giving everyone that cares about a certain piece of public land, some information that they can use. If they, they might need more science, they might need additional resources, but this is really a great starting point for any campaign. And just to look back at the Obama administration where we had a ton of national monuments designated, great conservation victories, that administration always wanted to see kind of an economic report or benefit about how this monument NCA designation would help the local economy. That was just something they wanted to see. I feel like this administration is going to want to see climate biodiversity. They're really going to want to tie conservation into what Biden said on day one of his inauguration is a priority, which is 30 by 30 and mitigating climate and biodiversity. They're gonna wanna see those factors. So here's a great starting point that costs you no money that you can use to get at least some baseline information for your campaign.
2: We didn't create new science. We made the science accessible for free. You don't have to dig through journals behind a paywall to compile everything for your landscape. It's there um, and anybody can use it. And I think that's power of data is you know, only there if people can access it and look at it. And, you know, as we talk about how our friends group operate on the ground and how this helps with their work, I think Danielle hit all the points I wanted to get to, but I think also it gives advocates on the ground another tool to tell a story because ultimately the way we do our work is through story, how we communicate, how we tell about a place and the importance a place has. And this is just another element of that story. So now our advocates can tell the story much richer and have the data to back it up which is ultimately how we're going to pass particular bits of legislation or policy change to protect these places story matters but story in the policy world needs the data and this is this is that data
0: so during that workshop that that I mentioned where you were sort of introducing this tool to a group of representatives from uh, friends groups that are a part of the Friends Grassroots Network. You presented this example of sort of, here's an area with high resiliency and high connectivity to other protected areas that isn't protected, right? So it's like the tool allows you to see that, to see that, okay, here's a protected area. Here's another protected area adjacent to it. Here's an area with really high climate resiliency in between. And it doesn't have protection, right? And so like there's a story right that one of these friends groups could could take and integrate into an an advocacy campaign to establish protection for that area. However, I pulled up the Climate Atlas tool on my own and the first thing I did was zoom in on the Snake River Plain and our national conservation area the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA that our friends group is associated with. That area is already protected and has extraordinarily low climate resiliency. Um, And I mean, that's not a surprise to like either Steve or myself, right? It's like, we know that we've already lost, you know, what, 70% of the, the native shrub habitat is already gone and almost certainly is never coming back. So I guess I was trying to think through what the story would be for sort of the, the flip side of that, right? It's like, what if you have an area that's already protected, has really low resiliency? Surely there's many other examples of this. I'm just curious if, if you have any thoughts about how you could craft that into a productive message.
1: Right. So I have two uh, points to make on that because I completely agree. Not every acre shows up as perfect on the climate resilience scale, so one factor is the scope that you're looking at is coast to coast in the lower 48. And so those kind of climate resilience are going to skew to kind of your coastal area, rainforest, high density trees, as far as carbon sequestration and climate resilience, you're kind of doing like an apples to orange comparison there. One thing that we want to update the tool is to allow you to focus on a certain region or landscape. For example, when we showed this tool to uh, high-level folks at the BLM, they were concerned that some of the remaining grasslands that are intact, which are so important, don't resonate high on some of these scales. Well, again, because you're doing an apples to orange comparison. If you were able to draw a line around kind of your grassland range and run the analysis that way, you're going to then see high you're gonna see different things pop up cause you're doing it apples to apples instead of apples to oranges, if that makes sense. So really we're trying to update the tool to allow you to have a little bit more flexibility on the types of landscapes you're looking at and that might change the results a little bit. And that's the feedback that we've had. My second point is, this is one tool and one set of values. There are so many other values that go with the importance of protection of public lands. It's quality of life. It's cultural, it's history. It's, you know, love for a bird species, it, you know, whatever it is, this tool doesn't measure all of that. And so while this is important It's not everything. And so that's my kind of second point there is just because your landscape doesn't resonate as like, you have to protect this to store X amount of carbon doesn't mean there aren't a ton of other extrinsic values that you could make the case for the importance of that protection.
0: Totally. That definitely makes sense. Um, And I mean, that kind of leads me into my next question, which is about, Another idea surrounding land management practices, which is this RAD land management framework um, that was implemented by the National Park Service, I mean, almost a year ago, RAD is an acronym. It stands for resist, accept, direct, and it basically encourages land managers to, to analyze situations on the ground and assess whether it makes sense to continue resisting Changes to that landscape. It's sort of like the federal government, at least within the National Park Service, giving permission to land managers to say, trying to uh, restore this particular landscape to some past condition is fruitless, right? And sometimes you just have to accept that those changes are are gonna happen and those are inevitable. And then the direct component of it, the idea of directing change, I think is what's most interesting, which is the idea that we're giving permission to land managers to envision a, a future landscape that is not necessarily anything at all like what that landscape has looked like at any point in the recent past, and then to take active management steps to achieve that future condition. Um, and to me, that's just like revelatory, right? And, and and I mean, partly because I have thought for a long time that this idea of resisting change and trying to restore habitats to like the way they looked at some arbitrary point in the past is kind of silly. But I, you like, it, I, I guess I'm just curious, like, is this something on CLF's radar? Is this something that you think the Bureau of Land Management should adopt as well?
1: You know, I would say right now it is not something on CLF's radar. We are at the stage of there are still so many intact, amazing landscapes that are under that aren't protected and are under threat that like we need to start there, right? And we need to make sure we don't degrade. Uh, Drill and, and impact those landscapes that exist as for you know the restoration component I think that's a big part of you know future conversations and something that the agency is grappling with, but there it's so much more complex. And I know our friends groups do restoration and restoration efforts, and I think in a lot of places it makes a ton of sense because the science says you can restore this area and it will make an impact. Other areas, yes, I know that the longevity of that restoration is in question. Really at CLF, while that is so important, There's so much to protect now that is in its natural, pristine state, and we need to start and we need to focus there, and that's really where, you know, kind of CLF's niche is.
2: I would 100% agree. When you talk about 30 by 30, 20 by 30 is not very far away. When you talk about the extension of that 50 by 50, that's not realistically very far away. Um, And I 100% think that restoration is a vital part of it. But what we can do now is protect the places that need to be protected. You know, as a new father, what I like to think is like, what what can I do? And what is my kid going to be able to do? I need to make sure that these places get protected now. My kid can worry about the restoration. That's going to be his job down the road. But right now, what I'm in the position to do is make sure that the places that are the most vital to ensure that he has a future get protected now. And I'm gonna leave it to him and his generation to figure out how do we start restoring back to something that allows us to look to the next 3000 years.
1: Yeah, and to just give one other kind of piece of context, and you said this is the national parks that have adopted this model. So the national parks are, are, are beautiful crown jewels, the agency really focused on conservation, but that system is not expanding. Unless lands come from the Bureau of Land Management or Forest Service, like they have kind of a set um, portfolio of lands and so they're looking at restoration of what they have. The National Conservation Lands, the potential is millions of hundreds of millions of acres because the agency has so many millions of acres that are not protected yet. And so we're really focusing on those future protections. And so it does make sense that the Park Service is really looking at what they have managed now and looking at that restoration piece, while BLM, the potential for further conservation and significant further conservation is really kind of the focus and especially under the 30 by 30. the 30 by 30, you know, agenda that, that Biden has put out.
0: You've mentioned these, like the, the 30 by 30 goal and the 50 by 50 goal quite a bit. Um, and, and obviously like, I'm, I'm very familiar with these campaigns. I understand the idea behind them and the idea of protecting landscapes to increase generally climate resiliency. But one of the things that Andres, you've also been talking a lot about are like the connections that local communities and specifically indigenous communities have with a lot of these landscapes. And from the perspective of indigenous communities, I think these like the goal, the 30 by 30 goal, the 50 by 50 goal can be problematic, right? Because like in order for these lands to get protected, what we call protected, they had to first be taken, stolen from indigenous nations, right? And, you know, when we talk about that, like when we talk about this in the US, it's like we're sort of disconnected from that dispossession because it happened a long time ago. But like indigenous dispossessions in order to protect landscapes, like that's still happening, right? And that's really a legacy of like our conception of what protected land should be in the United States. And so I just like, it's it's so like tricky for me. Um, whenever I hear people talking about the 30 by 30 goal and the 50 by 50 goal, I'm like, but what does that really mean? Does that mean that humans shouldn't be living on 50% of the landscape of the earth? Like we need some nuance, I think, in that discussion and some understanding that like, a pro- like what does a protected landscape really mean? And Steve and I have had The opportunity to have a number of conversations with some of the folks from the Duck Valley Reservation. We had the opportunity to interview the former chair of their leadership uh, council, and we asked a whole, you know, a whole bunch of questions about like his perspective on the management and the sort of like protection measures that have been put in place in the NCA. And he just kept coming back to us and asking the same question: like, is it really protected? From his perspective, it's not protected because he sees that land as being stolen from his people and he doesn't agree with many of the the land management decisions that are going on there. So like in his perspective, that doesn't count. I'm trying to like, I guess, provide the opportunity to like insert some of that nuance into these goals because I know that that's there for you guys and for CLF, but I I think we should clarify what we mean by protected land, I guess.
2: It's not an easy conversation, but it's also not a conversation that we should try to put under the rug and ignore like it, this should be out front. So I think first and foremost when we're talking about protecting land, we should we should be very clear with ourselves whose land it is, what what tribe or nation comes from that landscape and recognize that these are sovereign nations. We often treat them as uh, nonprofits and we forget to realize that these are sovereign nations that we are dealing with who are and we're talking about their land that was stolen from them. Um, And that makes the conversation very hard, but it doesn't change the fact that we're in an existential climate crisis. And together we can get through to that. Um, But also, and I wanna make sure that when we talk about protecting landscapes, it doesn't mean we're cutting people off from that. We can protect landscape from development, which is um, industry, uh, habitat, um, fragmentation, all these development things that will lead to climate catastrophe, we can prevent those and still have accessible landscapes for traditional uses, for low-impact recreation, and all the things that will further connect people to their landscapes while in trying to curb the climate crisis that we're in. So protection doesn't mean exclusion from landscapes. Protection means halting development. Um, and I, I think there's a middle path where we can have both. But again, that larger conversation of what would what does justice look like 50 years from now when we talk about these lands? That's like that's the elephant in the room that we need to be talking about more as we talk about how do we make sure that justice is um, achieved? We talk about not just climate crisis curbing, but racial and environmental justice, and that's a that'd be another great podcast because I I think we could all talk for. Hours on this.
1: I think we have a lot to learn from tribes too, just in conversations on various campaigns. You know, the indigenous community has so much of their spirituality and their history and meaning tied to places and animals, and their connection to lands is so much stronger in many ways than, you know, us white folks. And there's so much to learn about a specific landscape through that kind of vision that they have the history there. And, and I think, you know, it's us white people that have really messed things up. And so we have a lot to kind of learn. And it's through those conversations that I think, These kind of tribally led campaigns where we're focusing on what's really important to them um, are ones that are going to be successful because they really respect and value conservation or protection or whatever word um, that you want to use. But the kind of spirituality of land and place and wildlife in ways
0: that we just don't. The land title for some of these areas is being given back to indigenous nations um, and management authority is being given back to indigenous nations. And this, this really is like this global movement that's happening, but I feel like here in the U S we're so far behind what's happening in Canada and Australia and New Zealand. I mean, these other sort of settler colonial nations, right. You bring this up amongst conservationists and it's almost like Like, whoa, that's like so radical. And it's like, no, this is happening in in other countries. Like we shouldn't necessarily treat this like such a radical idea.
1: Kind of the way that we look at working with tribes is not to assume. I think there's a lot of environmental groups now that are like co-management. We should have co-management, co-management. It's like, well, what do the tribes want? What do they actually want? Maybe they don't want co-management. Maybe they want their land back. Maybe they just want to have a seat at the table. But you know, what do they actually want? Let's start there. Let's have these conversations without assuming anything. So I think that's the per- perspective that CLF takes is just let's sit down and see what the tribes actually want. And then we'll have a discussion from there and see you know what's the best way to work together and protect these lands. And I think that's kind of the model that we take.
2: Yeah, and I would say just, again, recognizing that these are sovereign nations and cultures across our entire world, and it's not a monolithic block. They're all going to have very different perspectives on how to use their land. And it's hard to it's hard to blame a community if they say, you know what, because of our historical traumas, the way that we're going to move forward is through mineral extraction, because what, what was ours was taken away, and this is our path forward. And those are conversations that we'll be running into where Land back will sometimes mean something that we're not comfortable with, um, and those are hard conversations that we're going to have to be having in the next few years if we're honest about issues like land reparations, land back, and uh, you know co-management or other strategies we're engaging with tribal communities. Is that you, you can't assume that uh, everybody's on your side just because you promote a good idea like land, land back, um, and that that's like that's the gray thorny area that we're going to be grappling with and that's a conversation that's going to be really important to have down the road and will require a lot of soul searching.
0: That was our conversation with Danielle Murray and Andres Esparza from the Conservation Lands Foundation. If you'd like to learn more about this podcast and the organization that produces it, you can head over to birdsofpreyncapartnership.org or check out the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership on Facebook. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Wild Lens Collective and with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Music is by Like a Rocket and Ragged Coyote.